So a lady called the pastor. She said, I'd like to make an appointment. I need some counseling. I have this besetting sin that I'm struggling with. So the pastor made arrangements and uh, um, they met at the office and she said, Pastor, you need to pray for me. I need some advice. I'm not sure what to do. She said, I've got this sin. I just can't seem to get over it. So, well, let's talk about it. She said, well, when I come to church on Sunday morning, she says, as soon as I walk in the building, I look around and I see all the other ladies and I just become instantly aware that I am the most beautiful woman in the room. And she said, I know the others notice too, and I'm sure it makes them self-conscious, and I can't do anything about it, but I, I just, I'm always distracted by this obvious difference in my beauty and theirs. What can I do about this besetting sin? Well, the pastor wanted to help her, and he looked at her for a moment, and he said, Mary, I don't think it's so much a besetting sin as it just very poor judgment. We are continuing our series on pride. And we've been talking about the sin that conquers kings. And today we're going to be talking about uh, three kings, time permitting. We're going to be talking about Hezekiah, Haman, Haman who actually wanted to be king, and Herod. If you'll turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Isaiah, you might be surprised that you do find some of the Chronicles of the Kings in the book of Isaiah. But there's a particular story I want you to notice we're going to look at. And you look in Isaiah chapter 39. Big book, 66 chapters. Go to about the middle, you'll find chapter 39. I need to give you the context for what's about to happen. The prophet Isaiah came to Hezekiah and said, set your house in order, get your affair, affair straightened out because uh, your sickness is terminal. As a guy had been sick and the prophet came to him and said, you're going to die. Well, then Hezekiah, he turned his face to the wall and he cried and he prayed and said, Lord, I've served you and I've been a good king and I've kept your commandments and tried to lead the kingdom back to you and I've got so much left to do. And, and he just brokenhearted, crying. And before Isaiah even got out of the palace, the word of the Lord came to Isaiah and said, go back and talk to Hezekiah. Tell the captain of my people I've heard your prayer, I've seen your tears, I'm going to give you 15 years. I know that rhymes, but that's what it says. <laughs> and and uh, Isaiah said, what sign do you want that God is going to do this thing? Do you want the sun to go down 10 degrees, or do you want it to go backwards 10 degrees? And Hezekiah thought, well, it's a small thing for the sun to go down 10 degrees, but if it should go backwards, that would be really something. So Isaiah went out and he prayed to the Lord. And God did something at that point that had never happened before, has not happened since. Time did not stand still. The sun went backwards. Now that was universally observed. And the wise men in Babylon, uh, later, uh, you know, Daniel was one of those wise men. And then you have them, they're called magi. They're not astrologers, or they were astronomers. And they studied the heavens, and uh, they were the scientists. They were watching this phenomenon. And can you imagine how, what it would do to the nations of the world and their concept of the cosmos and God if all of a sudden time stopped and the sun began to go the other direction? 
And after much inquiry, word eventually reached them, this happened because of Jehovah answering the prayer of Hezekiah. And they said, we've got to find out more about this God. So the king of Babylon sends embassy and ambassadors to find out. And here's where our story takes up. At that time, this is verse 1, Isaiah 39, at that time Merodach Baladan, the son of Baladan, king of Babylon, sent letters and a present to Hezekiah, for he had heard that he had been sick. Not only gave him a greeting card, a big present, and he sends these emissaries, and he had recovered. Now, just so you have the complete context, I want to give you one more verse. Don't lose your place there in Isaiah 39. You look in... Um, 2 Chronicles 32, 31. Just take my word for it. I'll read it to you. However, regarding the ambassadors of the princes of Babylon whom they sent to inquire about the wonder that was done in the land. So they came to inquire about the wonder that was done in the land. And Hezekiah was pleased with them. You know, Babylon was an ancient city right after the Garden of Eden. They built Babel after the flood. And it was one of the first cities, and they had the you know, first oldest universities there, and, and uh, the, the latest fashions came out of Babylon. You remember Achan, he couldn't resist taking this Babylonian garment, and he ended up losing his life for fashion. But um, So Hezekiah was impressed. Babylon, Bab, come to see me. Messengers from the king of Babylon. And he thought, well, I'm such a small kingdom compared to the kingdom of Babylon. He wanted to make a big impression. Well, now they have come to find out about God. They've come to find out about Hezekiah's God. Now, Hezekiah was a good king. He, you would want him as an elder in your church if you live today. Um, he was dedicated. He obeyed God's commandments. He was sincere. He prayed a lot. But it says, the Lord allowed him to be tested, that he might know what was in his heart. And not that God could know. God knows everything. Hezekiah didn't know. And so this is what's happening here. It says, Hezekiah was pleased with them and showed them the house of his treasures, the silver and gold and spices and precious ointment and all his armory and all that was found among his treasures. There was nothing all of his house or his dominion that Hezekiah did not show them except the Lord. He showed them his stuff. He was so proud of his stuff. You know, the Bible tells us a man's life does not consist in the abundance of things that he possesses. And what is one of the problems with the church in the last days? Laodicea and Revelation chapter 3. They think they are rich and increased with goods. And Hezekiah was maybe getting his worth from what he had instead of who he was. You know, Jesus said it's very hard for a rich man to get into the kingdom of heaven. You look in Mark chapter 10, verse 23. Then Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, this is after that rich young ruler walked away, how hard it is for those who have riches to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were astonished at his words. But Jesus answered again and said, Children, how hard it is for those who trust in riches to enter the kingdom of heaven. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And they were greatly astonished. The apostles had 
I mean, their whole idea was, you see, they had been hearing from the Pharisees the prosperity message. That if God loves you, he's going to bless you with material wealth. Now, there is some confusion because there are scriptures in the Bible that talk about if we are obedient and if we are faithful, God will bless us. But the greatest blessing, of course, is the spiritual blessing. Because after all, Jesus said, blessed are the what? The poor in spirit. Meaning people who are humble. He can bless them. But people that have a lot of material wealth can start becoming fixated and worship their things instead of worshiping the Lord. We've got our hands full in this country and in our, in our age. You know, if you go back 200 years, the number of things a person could own, the average California person takes on his backpack trip. trip. I mean, everything you own, you could pretty much fit on a backpack. I'm finishing a book right now. It's written by a man named George Megan. It's, it's an older book, but I think you could probably still find it. It's called The Longest Walk. True story. Most of what I read is I, I read history. This man walked from Tierra del Fuego down in the southernmost part of South America, 1,914 miles, all the way to Prudhoe Bay, Alaska. No one has ever done it since. It took him six and a half years. As he was working as a merchant seaman, he said, I want to do something interesting that no one else has done while I'm young. And he thought, I don't think anyone has ever walked the Western Hemisphere. I'm going to walk. And he knew it was a big commitment, and he did it. And whenever he had to go off the road to fix his wagon or something, he would then start back at the very place he left off. He walked the whole thing. You'll notice if you see on the map there, it says that it's 14,000 miles. That's because if you go directly. When he got to Texas, he wanted to see Washington. He walked to Washington, D.C. President Carter met him. Then he walked back to his starting point and then went on to Prudhoe Bay. That's why he walked 19,000 miles. And he lived six and a half years with everything he could carry on his back or pull in a little wagon. You know, I spent a lot of time on the road traveling, and uh, you start to realize that you have to live out of a suitcase, that when it really boils down to it, Jesus said, look at the birds, God feeds them. Look at the flowers, God clothes them. You need shelter, clothing, food. Everything else in your garage that keeps you from going on a mission project, you can become a prisoner to your possessions after a while. He showed him all his stuff. I couldn't help but notice it said his, 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 his. It made me think about where Lucifer said, I, 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 five times. Preoccupied with himself. But this is Hezekiah. I mean, he's a godly king. Now don't misunderstand. Having a lot of stuff does not mean you're proud. You can have a millionaire, a billionaire with a private jet that's humble. Abraham was a rich man and I think he had the right attitude. He's the father of the faithful. Or you can have a man in rags riding a bicycle who's proud. I've met them. And so material possessions do not mean you're automatically proud and or lost. But the problem is 
You start trusting in your stuff and glorying in your stuff instead of the Lord. You want to hear an amazing fact? True story. Aurora Shuck in 1989 was buried in her red 1976 Cadillac Eldorado. She loved her car. She was actually very short, but she had this great big car that she drove around. I think it was in Oklahoma. And uh, she told her husband, she says, I can't imagine going anywhere without my car. Bury me in my car. And she said, make sure the tank is full of gas. I think she'd go shopping or something. And her husband, loving her and wanting to honor her wishes, he went to the cemetery and says, I, I'd like to bury my wife in the car. And they said, well, that's never happened here before. And after much money and negotiation, he had to buy 14 lots. And he had to dig this great big hole, 27 feet long, 12 feet wide, and then reinforce it with concrete so he could lower the car in there with her casket in the middle of the open convertible. Someone who was watching the service that day said to a friend next to him, wow, that's really living large. And he looked at him and said, it's not living at all. <laughs> a man's life does not consist in the abundance of things he possesses. Makes me think about the kings of Egypt that were buried in their tombs with not only their stuff, but they would have their slaves executed and buried with them. As though they could take it with them. You know, Job lost everything in a day, but the devil could not take away his God. And God gave it all back. So if your happiness depends on how much stuff you have, you're never going to be happy, and you're probably going to be in debt. Or you'll be working yourself to death to try to keep up with the Joneses. The sad thing is he missed one of the most incredible opportunities. These ambassadors came from Babylon to find out about his God, and instead he showed his stuff. Now, Isaiah came back to him. Go back to uh, Isaiah 39. After this happened, Isaiah came back and asked him a question. Isaiah the prophet, verse 3, he showed him all his stuff. Verse 3, Isaiah the prophet went to King Hezekiah and said to him, what did these men say, and where did they come from to you? Hezekiah, he's still excited about it all, and he said, well, they've come to me from a far country, from Babylon. And he said, what have they seen in your house? So Hezekiah, still not thinking, he's clueless what he's done wrong. So Hezekiah answered, well, they've seen all that's in my house. There's nothing among my treasures I've not shown them. Then Isaiah said to Hezekiah, hear the word of the Lord of hosts. Behold, the days are coming when all that is in your house, what your fathers have accumulated unto this day, will be carried to Babylon. Nothing will be left, says the Lord. Now here's a principle. People are going to want your treasure. It's a law of life. People are going to want your treasure. If God is your treasure, they'll want your God. People will value what you value. And since he showed them all his stuff, they said, maybe this is why their God could stop time. All their material blessings. And we're going to make very careful notes of everything he showed us. And that's why later Nebuchadnezzar came and he focused on that little country of Jerusalem. Because they heard about the great riches that the fathers had accumulated. How sad 
What if he had told them about God? You know, I, I remember reading about one of the great um, stories of history when Marco Polo, along with his father and uncle Niccolo and Matteo Polo, they went to China, and you know that they became friends of the great Kublai Khan, who is the king of one of the biggest empires, the biggest empire on earth at the time, the Mongol Empire. And uh, they managed to get their way in the court. Young Marco learned to speak the language fluently, and after 20 years living there in Mongolia and trading, and they had acquired a lot of wealth, uh, they needed to get permission from the Kublai Khan to even leave because he depended on Marco, ended up becoming an ambassador for him around the empire. And he said, I'm going to let you go back, but you've got a promise. He said, I'm impressed with your Western ways. I'm impressed with your knowledge and your God. I want to know more about the man who died on the cross. He said, tell your priest to send us a hundred teachers of your religion to come and teach the people of my kingdom. Can you imagine that? The king of China saying, send a hundred missionaries and getting the endorsement to go and teach that religion around the kingdom. Well, when the, the Polos finally made it back to Venice and to Italy, it was at a time in history when two popes were arguing among themselves about who would be pope. And as the Polos kept begging, send missionaries. You have no idea what a great opportunity is. They, they downplayed it. China, they're all primitive. We don't know anything about China. They didn't understand that if Christianity had gone to China with the Silk Road and the trade around the East, history would have been vastly different. Finally, after much pestering, the Pope said, I'll send two. One died along the way, the other got discouraged and turned back. How different history would have been. Missed opportunities. So we need to all ask ourselves that question. You know, God brings us in contact with people every day, and the question is, what have they seen in thy house? No, I don't know if that literally means people come in your house, but your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. What have they seen in thy house? What do you have in your mind, in your heart? What are people seeing? Are they seeing your love of stuff? Or do they see your love of God? What's your treasure? People will notice what you value. You know, I read this story and I'm, I will confess I am deeply convicted. I remember one time I was at the home up in Kovalo and I had ordered some propane. And we use propane for the refrigerator and the hot water heater and don't want to burn wood in the summertime, it's too hot. So they deliver it once a year. And the delivery truck came up the dirt road to deliver it, and the guy came out, and I looked at this strapping, strong young man, I thought, he looks familiar. And he looks at me and he goes, Pastor Doug, I always wanted to come to your place, I've never been here before. Turns out he was once a kid that I had taught in juniors. I used to teach junior Sabbath school, and we played songs, and I knew the family very well. And I knew that as they grew up, they stopped going to church. And when I saw him, I thought, praise the Lord, divine appointment, I can talk to him. And then he said, I've never been here. Boy, you've got a nice place. Did you design the house? That was it. He let the genie out of the bottle. I said, well, yes, in fact, I did design the house. And, and did you build it well with some help from friends? And, and uh, he said, is it solar? I said, yeah. And then it just got worse from there. 
I said, yeah, it's just all part. It's solar panels here, and we got the inverter, we got the batteries, and then it transforms it. And I started just going on and on. You know, sometimes people ask you a question, and if it's something you're excited about, you don't know when they stop listening because you become hypnotized by your own voice. And I began to wax eloquent about how this place was off the grid and how I built it with a southern exposure so that we get the heat the right time. And pretty soon he looked at his watch. He said, hey, this is fascinating. He said, I got to go make another delivery. And, and I thought, but wait, there's more I want to tell you. Not about God, about the house. <laughs> and pretty soon he hopped in his truck, turned around, he drove away, and I saw the cloud of dust. And I heard a little voice say, what did he see in your house? And you know what? I've never seen him again. And I didn't get his address. I didn't get his contact information. And that haunts me. I know God's forgiven me. But I tell you that because how many times have we missed those opportunities? Because we were so preoccupied with our pride and our stuff and our lives and our accomplishment to make ourselves look good that we're not thinking about God. And we miss some great opportunities through materialism. You know, when you read this story in 2 Chronicles, I'll just read you one verse. 2 Chronicles 32, verse 24. In those days, Hezekiah was sick near death, and he prayed to the Lord. And he spoke to him, and he gave him a sign. But Hezekiah did not repay according to the favor shown him, for his heart was lifted up. Therefore wrath was looming over him and over Judah and Jerusalem. Then Hezekiah humbled himself for the pride of his heart, in case you doubt that that was the problem. God says that was the problem. Hezekiah humbled himself for the pride of his heart, he and the inhabitants of Jerusalem. So the wrath of the Lord did not come upon them in the days of Hezekiah. Babylon did not come until years later. By the way, part of the curse, he said, Isaiah said that... Uh, the king of Babylon will come and he's going to take away all your treasure and he's going to take away your children and make some of them eunuchs in his palace. That was a prophecy of what happened with Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah were all related to the royal line of David. Did you know that? So they were a fulfillment of that. How sad. 1 John 2.6 for all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the pride of life is not of the Father but of the world. The lust of the eyes, materialism. We measure what we are worth by what we have. What good is it if you get buried with your Eldorado Cadillac? You're not going anywhere. You know when the husband died, they cremated him and then they piped his ashes down into the car to be beside his wife. So they could drive around together, I guess. You know why Jesus was uh, betrayed? Judas. For materialism. Sold the Savior. And you wonder how many others are selling out the Savior for silver. So that's one thing. Hezekiah. All right. Before I go to the next king, I'm going to talk about kings that are conquered by pride. I want to look at a contrast that I think might be healthy. Turn in your Bibles to uh, the first book of Kings, chapter 3. We talked about Hezekiah and his preoccupation with my treasure, my stuff. In contrast to that, you could say juxtaposed to that, I want you to look at Solomon in his youth, who was humble and dedicated. 
in spite of having a father that was the greatest king that uh, Israel ever had. Notice this. In 1 Kings chapter 3, go to verse 3. And Solomon loved the Lord, walking in the statutes of his father David, except that he sacrificed and burnt incense at the high places because they hadn't built the temple yet. Now the king went to Gibeon to sacrifice there, for there was a great high place, and Solomon offered a thousand burnt offerings on the altar. Can you imagine that? And at Gibeon, after he makes this great sacrifice because he loves the Lord, at Gibeon, the Lord appeared to Solomon in a dream by night, and he said, ask what I shall give you. How many of you would like to have the Lord ask you that question? What would you ask for? Bigger house, better pickup truck, more stuff, ask what I shall give you. Kind of like having a genie, you know. You rub the bottle, you get three wishes, and we all fantasize. We don't tell other people, we fantasize, what would I ask for? God says, what do you want? More powerful than any genie, he's God. What does Solomon say? Notice this. Solomon said, you have shown great mercy to your servant, David, my father, because he walked before you in truth, in righteousness, and in uprightness of heart with you. You continued this great kindness for him, and you have given him a son to sit on his throne as it is this day. doesn't even mention his name. He says, you gave David a son. Now, O Lord, my God, you have made your servant king instead of my father, David. But I am a little child I do not know how to go out or come in. Jesus said, unless you're converted and become as little children, you cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. It's talking about the, the humility of a child that just knows they don't know. And your servant is in the midst of your people, whom you have chosen, a great people too numerous to be counted. Now, therefore, give your servant an understanding heart that your people... Uh, to judge your people that I might discern between good and evil for who is able to judge this great people of yours. Did you catch it? He never mentions his name. But what he does say is you, your, you, 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 your, your, you, your, your, yours. He starts with you. He ends with yours. It's all about God. The devil, I, 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 I. And one of these two motives drives us all the time. As a Christian, when you're born again, you love the Lord like Solomon. And it brings a humility into our lives. And like a baby born again, we become like little children. We know compared to God, we don't know anything. And we humble ourselves. And then God can bless us. And did God bless, you know, the things a person might ask for? The ones who rub the genie bottle? I say, oh, I'd like to have a long life. I want to be rich. I want to have the best clothes. And I want to have victory over my enemies. And you know what God said to Solomon? Because you have sought first my kingdom and my righteousness. Isn't that what he asked for? He said, I want to judge your people, your kingdom. Who can do it? I don't know anything. Because he sought first God's kingdom and his righteousness, he got everything else. Solomon was the richest king. He lived a long life. He had victory over his enemies, and he had royal apparel. He got it all. He got all the stuff because he put God first. Now, later in life, he married the wrong girls, 
and uh, things went south, literally. Actually, the Queen of Sheba came from the south, and that was okay, but it was after that things went south. So, you get the principle? It's all about God. We're going to jump ahead now and go to the book of Esther and look at another king. This is Haman. Now, Haman was not really king. He, was, he wanted to be king. He was number two to the king. And again, I'd like to set up and just give you the background. If you go to the book of Esther, chapter 5, verse 9, Haman is promoted by the king. He becomes a king's friend. He's number two. He's in the palace all the time. But he really wants to be king. And the king issues that because of his high station, everybody's to bow to Haman, just like the pharaoh told everybody to bow to Joseph. So Haman has this great honor, but there's a problem. Mordecai, the Jew, who has some position working for the king, he works in the gate. When Haman goes by, Mordecai is not going to worship him. He does not bow. And in spite of all that Haman has, it just chaps his hide that Mordecai won't bow to him. He can't be happy because of this, because he's being slighted by somebody. That's one of the problems with pride. If you're easily offended, that's usually pride. If you take offense, you notice every time someone slights you or doesn't notice you or doesn't invite you, and you think, well, what about me? You know, proud people never have peace. It's the, the poor in spirit that have that peace. Now look in Esther 5, verse 9, just to explain this. So Haman went out that day joyful and glad of heart. But when Haman saw Mordecai in the king's gate and that he did not stand or tremble before him, he was filled with indignation against Mordecai. So Haman, he can't take it anymore. And he goes and he talks to his family and they say, well, let's you know, get the king to sign a law to eradicate not only Mordecai, but all of his people. He learned he was a Jew. So he tricks the king into signing a law just like the, the counselors tricked Darius to sign a law that would kill everyone that doesn't pray to the king for 30 days. Haman goes to the king of Persia and he gets him to sign a law that says all these people are to be annihilated. He doesn't even ask who they are. It's the Jews. All to be annihilated on a set date. And... Um, but in the meantime, he says, I'm not going to wait for Mordecai. I'm going to build a gallows and just get permission from the king to hang him. So after he gets the law signed that all the Jews are to be killed on a particular date, he says, I'm going to go see if I can get this special early death decree for Mordecai. I've, in fact, I've already built the gallows in anticipation that I'm going to hang him on these gallows. And I didn't just build any old gallows. I built a gallows 50 cubits high. So everybody's going to see him hang. And so I just got to get the death decree signed by the, uh, the king. So he goes to the king, but the problem is that night, he's going to go to the king early in the morning. That night before Haman comes to see the king, the king of Persia can't sleep. I don't know, something he ate or whatever it was. He's tossing and turning, and he's trying to go to sleep, and the musicians are playing, and it's not working. And finally, he gets the scribe. He says, you know, I always seem to go to sleep when the scribe starts reading me the chronicles. Some of you still go to sleep when you read Chronicles and Numbers, right? <laughs> and says, come on in here, read me the minutes from the, the last month or whatever it is. And so he begins to read, and the king's finally starting to relax a little bit. And then the scribe says, and there was an assassination attempt against the king. And it was revealed by Mordecai, 
and the two assassins were executed. And then the next day, and the king goes, wait, 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 read that again. And he reads it again. He said, what did we do for the guy that saved me from assassination, Mordecai? He said, whoa, record says we didn't do anything for him. And the king is saying, wow, that's not very kingly. A guy saved my life. I don't give him a card or anything. He's thinking about this, and all of a sudden, there's someone at the gate. Who is it? That's well, Haman. Oh, my friend Haman. Bring him on in. Bring him in. Yeah, he'll help me out with this. Haman comes in, and the king says, Haman, I'm glad you're here. I've got a question for you. What shall be done for the one whom the king delights to honor? Haman, who has real pride problems, says, hmm, who would the king want to honor more than moi? And so he thinks the king is saying, you know, what do you want for Christmas? And in a roundabout way. And so he says, well, what I'd do is, is I'd get the king's horse that the king rides on and get robes the king has worn and get the king's most important official and put this individual on the king's horse wearing the king's robes and march him up the city and say, thus shall it be done for the one whom the king wants to exalt. Make a parade. And the king says, seems odd, but all right, we'll do it. He said, but uh, you do it. You're my highest official, and this is for Mordecai, the Jew. You know, the Bible says, he who exalts himself will be humble. He who humbles himself, Mordecai was humbling himself before God, he is exalted. Talk about a reversal of fortune. He hears that and he said, don't leave. The king says, don't leave anything out. To a T, everything you said, go do it. The king of Persia, you don't disagree. So he has to go out and he has to parade Mordecai, who he was going to hang. And after he does that, he goes home and he forgets that he's got this invitation to come to Esther's banquet. He doesn't know why she wants him there, but he's thinking it's a special honor. Maybe that'll make me feel better. He has no idea what's coming. And at this second banquet of Esther, Esther falls down before the king, and the king says, what is it? You've had these banquets. What is it? And Haman goes, yeah, what is it that you want? She said, I want to be saved. There's been a law made to destroy all of my people, to eradicate all of the Jews, and I'm a Jew. Who would dare to do such a thing? And him. Points to Haman. The king hears that, he gets up in a fury and he stomps out onto the balcony to figure out what to do. Haman realizes he's in hot water and in great agitation, he throws himself in Esther's lap, begging for mercy. The king walks back in, he thinks that he's attempting to rape his queen. That doesn't look good. And the king says, not only are you trying to kill her people, now you're going to rape the queen in front of me. And as soon as he says that, none of the king's counselors liked Haman. He was so full of himself. I, as I mentioned before, pride is the kind of thing like bad breath. Everyone around you knows it's a problem, but you. You ever try and tell an arrogant person they're arrogant? They don't see it. And no one, none of the other king's counselors like Haman. And they said, yeah, and Haman built a gallows. See right across there in the wall? He built a gallows 50 feet high to hang Mordecai that saved the king from assassins. And the king says, hang him on it. Isn't that interesting? The one who is closest to the king ends up being hung. 
And the one who is at the gate under the death decree, Mordecai gets that position. Lucifer, who was close to God, is going to go to the pit. And Jesus, who humbled himself, will be by the throne of God. So, it did not end well. He was proud of his status. St. Augustine prayed, Lord, make me humble, but not just yet. Psalm 138, verse 6, Though the Lord is on high, yet he regards the lowly, but the proud he knows from afar. Pride goes before destruction. If you see destruction coming, you can almost guess somebody, whether it's a person or a nation, there's been pride. And God knows how to humble. Amen? For our last case study in Kings that uh, have this sin of pride, I want you to look at Herod. Go to the New Testament. In Acts chapter 20, it tells us that Herod tries to uh, exterminate all of the apostles. And he's doing it for political benefit. He's trying to be more exalted in, in the view of the Jews. And so he knows the Jews and the religious leaders are very upset with this Christian group that's growing. And so he kills James, the brother of John. James is the first of the 12 apostles, other than Judas who hung himself to die from a martyr's death. And when he sees it, it makes him happy. He says, oh, we've got you know, 10 more to go. Well, he arrests Peter, planning to execute Peter. But you know the story. An angel comes and opens the prison doors, and Peter escapes. Well, Herod is so embarrassed by that, kind of humiliated. Herod, he leaves town. He goes down by the coast. And this is where the story takes up. Look, in Acts chapter 12, verse 20, now Herod, this is right after he tried to annihilate the church, Stop the growth of the word. Now Herod had been very angry with the people of Tyre and Zidon. That's the Phoenician city there north of Israel. But they came with one accord, having made Blastus the king's personal aid, their friend. They asked for peace because their country was supplied with food by the king's country. They said, let's make peace. So on a set day, they have a special occasion. Herod arrayed in royal apparel. He sits on his throne and he gives an oration to them. And the people are shouting, it's the voice of a God and not of a man making a speech, thinking everybody's impressed with every word you speak. Some people, that's their problem with pride. Ronald Reagan used to like to share a story. He says it's true. When he was governor of California, he was invited to Mexico City because there was a lot of business between California and Mexico. And they had this great assembly in this auditorium and they asked the president to make a speech and Reagan got up and he made this speech and then he sat down and there was this very embarrassing trickle of applause. And he thought, man, I must have said something wrong. So he sat there, the next speaker got up and he begins to speak and every paragraph, the people break into thunderous applause. And the president, not wanting to look like uh, he doesn't understand Spanish, uh, every time this next speaker speaks, the president decides, I'm going to just clap along with everyone else. Pretty soon, he's the first and the loudest person to clap. Until finally, the Spanish-Mexican ambassador leans over and says, Mr. President, you might not want to applaud. I said, why not? He said, this guy's translating your speech. <laughs> Reagan was applauding his own speech. So Herod is making the speech. Now keep in mind, Herod is, uh, 
He's from the Hasmonean people, but they were Jews. They understood it is blasphemy for a person to take worship that belongs to God. When the people up in Philippi wanted to worship Paul and Silas, Paul and Silas tore their clothes and says, don't do that. We are men just like you. So for the king not to correct them, when they said it is a voice of a God and not of a man, was blasphemy. He knew better. What happened? Immediately, an angel of the Lord struck him because he did not give glory to God and he was eaten by worms and he died. But the word of God grew and multiplied. He was fighting against the word of God. He died. The word of God grew. What brought him down? Pride. How did it happen? Eaten from the inside out. How is Lucifer going to be destroyed? Have you read there? It says, I'll bring forth a fire from the midst of thee, and it will devour thee from the inside out. By the way, Josephus, the historian, says that's what happened. He said he was eaten by maggots. Some terrible disease struck by the angel of the Lord. It's interesting, that story in uh, Acts chapter 12, it begins by the angel striking Peter to save him. And then the angel of the Lord, and Peter's in prison. And then the angel of the Lord strikes the king, and he dies. If God needs to strike us to wake us up, then we should humble ourselves before the Lord and embrace it. Amen? Pride can be fatal. You know, I... Uh, I like history. Some of you know I, I've done whole sermons on the Titanic. Uh, have you ever heard of the Russian Titanic? 1986, it wasn't called the Titanic. It was called the Admiral Nakimov. In the Black Sea, two ships at night, a great big Russian freighter was traveling out of port, and the um, Admiral Nakimov was a cruise ship with about 800 passengers on board. And the tanker ran broadside into the cruise ship, and it sank in about 20 minutes. They couldn't even get people in the lifeboats. 400 people died. The tragedy of it all is it was a clear night. The radios were working. They were in communication with each other. They saw each other's lights. It was calm water, and investigators were going, what in the world went wrong? There was no mechanical problem. They were talking to each other, and one of these great ships plowed right into another ship, and there was great loss of life. You know what it was? Pride. When the two ships found that they were on the same course, one ship was saying, you need to get out of my way. And the other ship was saying, I'm a cruise ship. I'm not moving. And the other ship was saying, you just need to turn. And both captains were too proud. They were playing this deadly game of chicken because they did not want to give way to the other ship. They were both claiming the right of way. And when they finally realized the madness of what they were doing, it was too late to reverse engines. And they had this collision. And 400 people went down in the icy waters. How sad. Pride is what caused it. You might think, well, that couldn't happen. I remember hearing another story about uh, during World War II, time of radio silence in the North Atlantic, there is this 
battleship that was crossing the ocean that saw another ship approaching. And they used these semaphores, these flashing lights to send messages when they have radio silence. And the captain sent a message to the other ship. It said, please adjust your course 10 degrees north. And the other ship signaled back. And it said, adjust your um, position 10 degrees south. The captain thought, well, I'm a captain. Adjust your position 10 degrees north. The response came back, I'm a private first class. Adjust your position 10 degrees south. And the captain's now furious and he signals, this is a U.S. battleship. Adjust your course 10 degrees north. And the response came back, we are the lighthouse. It's your call. So for us to think we're going to tell God how things are supposed to run, it doesn't end well. He is God. He is the rock. He's not going to move. He doesn't need changing. We need changing. We need to humble ourselves and make a course correction or we will end in disaster. Pride, friends, is a big problem. Pride is what turned the devil or the, an angel into a devil. It evicted Adam and Eve from the Garden of Eden. It inspired Judas to sell the Savior. And um, it's destroying more people probably than any sin. Six things the Lord hates. Yes, seven are an abomination to him. The first one he mentions is pride. You know, there's a quote, and I'll close with this. It's from a beautiful book called Welfare Ministry, page 86. If we would humble ourselves before God, and be kind and courteous and tender-hearted and pitiful, there would be 100 conversions to the truth where now there is only one. So let us humble ourselves before the Lord. People want to see your treasure. They want to see your God. Sometimes we're so full of ourselves, that's all they see. We need to ask that the Lord would give us new hearts so we could reflect our Savior. They would see Jesus, and we would see a lot of change as a result of that. Amen? Amen.